0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India
1: and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: October, for example was the classic time for falling out of trees trying to knock acorns down to fatten pigs uh, because that was the season for fattening up pigs on ripe
2: acorns before you slaughtered them
3: That was Stephen Gunn on some of the dangers that faced the inhabitants of Tudor England
2: It's not a society of equals it's, uh, and, and I think that's, that's one of the, the historiographical uh, myths of the Anglo-Saxon period
3: And that was Ryan Lavelle on the Anglo-Saxons welcome to the History Extra podcast with me Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription and we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. And currently, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we do hope to roll them out to other countries soon. Last month, in our Christmas issue, historian Stephen Gunn co-wrote an article about dangerous toys and games in Tudor Times. It was based on research he'd undertaken for a major project on accidental death and everyday life in 16th century England. I interviewed Stephen shortly afterwards and I began by asking him to tell us a bit more about the project.
0: So this research comes from a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, which is running for four years, uh, and we're now uh, nearly a year and a half into it. Uh, the aim of the project is to look at the 9,000 or so uh, coroner's inquest reports into accidental deaths which survive from 16th century England. Uh, so far, we have photographed uh, probably more than three quarters of the reports, uh, and we've classified all the reports from the 1550s. That's the decade we started with uh, and we're now working on the 1590s with the aim of seeing whether uh, there are significant changes we can pick up between the 1550s pattern of accidents we found and the 1590s one and the hot news from the first couple of years of the 1590s is that there are a lot more accidents with guns which suggests that guns are spreading through 16th century England by the end of the century.
3: For the article you've written for our Christmas issue, we're talking specifically about the death of children. Were there quite a a lot of accidental deaths of children recorded here? Uh,
0: About one in six of our accidents uh, seem to happen to children. Uh, Quite often the specific age of the child is given, um, and what we do for uh, statistical purposes there is to break them down into what seems to have been one of the 16th century ways of thinking about people's life cycle. So children from naught to six that they think, they think in sevens, it seems so children from naught to six children from seven to 13 and then adolescents from 14 to 21, uh, 21 was the age you came of age as a landowner, um, uh, and uh, many apprenticeships and so on would have ended around that age. So there seemed to be periods of about seven years at a time. And one of the interesting things that comes out there is that children under seven seem hardly ever to have been working when they had accidents, whereas children between seven and 13, about a quarter of the accidents they had were while they were at work. So clearly, children of a certain age, unless they were uh, wealthy enough to be still in education between seven and 13, um, they would be expected quite often to be starting work of some sort.
3: So even though the thrust of the feature was about dangerous toys and games, in actual fact, a lot of children were dying in the workplace.
0: Yes. Um, often uh, fairly basic jobs. So carrying things around, uh, often following somebody else, carrying something, uh, carrying grain to a mill, for example, uh, or looking after animals, uh, taking um, uh, horses to water for example or, or feeding horses um, the one that surprised us with children working was large numbers of boys driving carts um, and uh, one of the accidents we found helps to explain uh, how they got into the position of driving those carts because we've got a nine-year-old boy who's being taught how to drive a cart by his father uh, who then gets overexcited and runs and jumps onto the cart and then falls off it and and, and is hit by the hit by the cart as it, as it falls over
3: when we're talking about the very young children, quite a few of them, it seemed, would have died playing or with toys. Were these kind of deaths quite common in those days, like more so, for example, than nowadays? It's difficult to
0: say because it doesn't always record what the children are doing We're, um, we do get insight from the fact that quite often they're described as playing but uh, quite often they're just described as being by water very large proportion of these deaths particularly of small children are drownings um, and so sometimes the way in which they're playing is described uh, one child said to be looking at her reflection uh, in a big tub of water um, uh, another child is um, making mud pies out of mud and then presumably wet mud by a ditch and then falls into a ditch and, and, and drowns um, but it's not always clear how they're playing what they're playing at but, but at least sometimes they, they're described as playing um, and uh the the, the the games that they play uh, are not always easy to reconstruct uh, so so this is one of the areas where the inquest reports don't tell us everything we'd like to know, obviously it would be nice to know if they were playing uh, knuckle bones or, or telling each other nursery rhymes or quite what, but, but they don't go into detail that they don't need in order to explain how the accident happened
3: But even so I suppose you're, you're getting information from these reports that you probably wouldn't get elsewhere about the way children lived
0: Uh, Well, that's right, because, of course, lots of the things that children did when they had accidents were things that were unspectacular. Uh, So they were things that nobody bothered to record. Um, And you can tell uh, things like where they were, were they inside their house or were they in the garden yard, uh, say, around the house or were they actually quite far from their house? Did children have quite a lot of freedom to go around, which... uh, uh, Some of them did, particularly as they got older, though a lot of the accidents to small children are either... Inside the house, uh, particularly very small children, sometimes strapped into chairs to stop them running around, but then those chairs toppling over into the fire, Um, or they're in a garden or a yard near the house. That's where quite often children are falling into tubs of water or uh, ponds in the back garden, or wells, or or, uh, areas of water like like that. Or they're playing with animals very close to the house, and then. we, uh, we've got babies, not, not actually in the 1550s sample, but in other samples, uh, attacked by pigs. Uh, but most often, the most dangerous horses, as they, the most dangerous animals, as they were for adults, were horses. Uh, so kicks from horses uh, or, or trampling by horses seems to have been uh, a really major danger for um, uh, people of all ages in, in the 16th century. Uh, and of course, then the accidents also tell you things like what time of day things happened. Uh, they'll tell you which day of the week things happened, uh, which... Months things happened in. Um, we've recently been doing some work on adult uh, games and recreations, uh, and that's very interesting because it shows you which months people did different sports in. So almost everyone who died playing football was playing football in February, whereas people who died watching uh, throwing competitions, um, throwing quoits or throwing the sledgehammer, which seems to have been quite a popular summer sport, that they were being killed in June and July, which seems to have been the sport for the the, the month for, for or the two months for playing those sports, and people who had accidents with collapsing May poles not surprisingly, tended to have them in May or in April when the maypoles had just been put up.
3: So this can can really open a window into leisure activities for adults and children in this period. Uh,
0: it seems to open a window of a different sort from the windows that we've had before, uh, because most information we have about leisure activities, uh, at least before you reach the uh, the nineteenth century, when. Uh, folklorists or whatever you you might call them became interested in uh, how children played and um, uh, what the traditions were of of children's recreation and of adults' local recreation and why they were different from different parts of the country. You might think in in the 20th century of the OP's great study into nursery rhymes, for example. Before all that, um, it's uh, really only possible to know about recreation most of the time, either because it cost money So occasionally uh, church wardens, for example, might pay to bring greenery into the church at different times of the year, or they might pay money for bonfires for um, uh, celebrating uh, bonfire night, gunpowder treason day, uh, things like that, Um, or because the authorities were trying to control things. So we know why people thought that um, dancing around maypoles was a bad idea because it encouraged young people to uh, 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 get too friendly with each other and produce illegitimate children and so on in the, in, in the nightmare vision of moral reformers of the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and we know why, for example, football was thought to be a bad thing because it stopped men doing their archery practice, which would have been a much more uh, militarily profitable way for people to spend their recreation time um, But we only know from that sort of material uh, that it was thought to be a bad thing, that authorities were trying to regulate it, maybe why it was thought to be a bad thing, and sometimes who the people were who were getting into trouble for doing it. What our sort of material tells us is not only for example, what sort of people were doing archery practice or playing football or throwing the sledgehammer or, or whatever, but also when and where and with whom and sometimes under what circumstances. So you can show, for example, that sometimes people from adjacent villages would play football matches against each other.
3: And has anything in your research so far, do you think, will change our understanding of leisure in this period?
0: Uh I think one of the interesting things is swimming,
3: uh,
0: because the the medical advice in the 16th century was mostly that it wasn't very good for you to expose your body to water. Uh, It opened the pores and let diseases in. Um, Swimming became more fashionable uh, in the late 16th century, particularly under the impact of people thinking about the classical world, where clearly uh, the Greeks and Romans uh, had done a lot of swimming um, and uh, so it's interesting that the first book on how to swim in English is written by a Cambridge academic in the 1580s, uh, and you find Cambridge students starting to drown trying to learn to swim uh, in in significant numbers in the 1560s and 70s, Uh, and we're finding people in our accidents, not all of them uh, scholars or or educated people or people who would be thinking, I must swim because the Romans were so manly and they did lots of swimming, Um, but some of them people like that, uh, we're finding them drowning uh, from the mid-16th century onwards, so we've got a scholar of Eton College who, who, who drowned in the 1550s, Uh, we've got these Cambridge people in the 1560s and 70s, but we have also got uh, apparently uh, people who aren't uh, studying and presumably hadn't read books uh, uh, like that, who are also trying to teach themselves to swim we've got somebody who's trying to teach himself to swim in the River Severn with uh, inflated bladders that he's holding onto but then the current is stronger than he thinks and it pulls the bladders away from him and then he he drowns Um, so it does look as though people were Uh, trying to swim and and in some ways trying to teach themselves to swim we've got someone who it said actually went to a pool to try to teach himself to swim Um, but when this first book on how to swim is written one of the things it says is if you're trying to learn take somebody who's a strong swimmer with you uh, in case you get into trouble and these people who drown are often people who who drown alone Uh, so uh, what this goes with also is a sense that um at least at the height of the summer in July and August, people, uh, men rather than women, are completely stripping off and going into water to wash after work uh, because labourers and um, uh, uh, people travelling uh, a long distance and getting hot uh, seem not to have thought, well, the best medical advice is to stay out of the water, but just to have thought, I'm very hot and sticky and dirty and I'm going to get in the water and have a good wash. And then something goes wrong and they, they end up drowning.
3: Coming back to uh, children, in these accident reports, were there any comments about negligence of the parents or guardian? Uh,
0: there don't seem to have been. Um, uh, occasionally, uh, there's a comment that um, people didn't know where the child was, say. Um, uh, it, if people had thought that parents were being negligent, then it looks as though they would have been able to say so because the format of the reports would have would have enabled that. But even at times when we might think the parents are being negligent, so, for example, there's a boy who takes his friends to play in his father's blacksmith's workshop and then uh, a hammer and a scythe fall down on top of him, um, there doesn't seem to be any blame placed on the parents. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the small boy who is uh, that's trying to drive the cart and then jumps onto it and turns it over, uh, it, it actually says that he did it without his father having told him to do it. So so there does seem to be a sense this wasn't the father's fault at all, that the boy just suddenly ran off and, and, and jumped on the cart. Um, and It's difficult, of course, because the jurors are local people, so it may well be that they don't want to um, get the parents into any more trouble than they're in already, uh, or that they don't want to cause them grief. But then the jurors themselves could be uh, um, put under uh, pressure or punishment by the government if it turned out that they'd given an untrue verdict. So we have to put some degree of trust in what the jurors told the coroner at the time.
3: And what were these reports used for? Were, Were they for prosecutions or anything? Did anything come out of them?
0: The, the point of the reporting process was to investigate the cause of death so that it was known whether it was a murder, because if it was a murder, then you'd start uh, a criminal investigation and uh, potentially bring a murderer to, to justice, uh, or whether it was a suicide, because if it was a suicide, then the goods of the person who'd killed themselves would be forfeited to the, to the crown, to the, to, to the king or queen, uh, b- because uh, suicide was regarded as a, as, as, a, as a crime against the king as well as a, a, a mortal Sin. Um, uh, so the idea was to look at accidental, well, look at all kinds of sudden deaths and decide whether they were uh, murders, whether they were suicides, whether they were accidents, or whether they were in, in another category, uh, which they called by divine visitation, which just means a sudden death with no obvious cause. Um, And the majority of those verdicts came in for people who, for example, died in prison, uh, where uh, jail fever seems to have gone through prisons uh, very fast. Uh, Sometimes it's a terrible case in Oxford in the 1570s, where not only do many of the prisoners die, but even the people trying them in court catch the fever from them, uh, and and the judges die as well. Um, And uh, so there are significant numbers of, of, of cases like that. But we do get occasional other cases where people just drop dead in the street for whatever and are not known to have any obvious disease, and therefore uh, it's thought suitable to have a coroner's inquest into it. The problem, of course, again, with the records is that we have no way of investigating all the deaths of that sort that didn't have a surviving coroner's inquest made into them. So it's hard to use these things for calculating absolute rates of death or even absolute rates of accidental death, although we can try to use them for comparing things, uh, as with the uh, uh, the point that I was um, making earlier that for example horses seem to have been involved in far more deaths than uh, any other kind of animals even other animals which you would think could be quite dangerous like cattle
3: does your research give you the impression that this was quite a dangerous time to be growing up in
0: Well, there were things that don't show up in our records that were much more dangerous than the things that do. So, very large numbers of children would have died before they reached the age of five, uh, and a lot of that is just from various kinds of epidemic and endemic disease, uh, particularly because diseases that adults had built up some kind of immunity to, children hadn't built up any immunity to. Um, Children were uh, obviously particularly susceptible to fluctuations in diet caused by bad harvests or... uh, problems with drinking water supplies. Um, so so we're looking at a society with very large uh, infant and small child mortality, even quite apart from the accidents. Um, and similarly, uh, obviously adults would have died in larger numbers from things like the plague or uh, the sweating sickness or uh, influenza uh, epidemics than they would have done in our accidents. But then the accidents also shed light even on those epidemics. So, for example, uh, what appears to have been the first big uh, influenza epidemic in English history happened in the late 1550s. Uh, and it's during that epidemic that we get numbers of reports of people who are uh, in a confused state because they're running such a high fever. Uh, And this is used by the jurors as an explanation for why people will... try to get uh, water to drink in particular in irrational ways and then fall into pits. We have somebody who comes downstairs early in the morning and smashes a hole in the kitchen wall in order to get out of her house, presumably because the the front door's locked and she's a servant. Um, So she smashes a hole in the wall to get out into the garden so that she can get some water to drink. Uh, Or we've got other people who are uh, in very high fever and uh, collapse at work uh, and then someone tries to pick them up and, and take them somewhere to look after them and then they bang their head on on a door. Um, So there are various circumstances in which people have uh, things which are accidents, and so they're classified as accidents in, in, in the records, but for which the context is uh, a large epidemic uh, of disease, which we know from other sources, in particular from parish registers, which uh, start in the late 1530s and record the baptisms and the burials uh, in each parish for the, for the places for which they survive. Those parish registers show us the, the large-scale movements of population, uh, and our accidents are just small pieces within that, that bigger pattern.
3: So do you think that because disease was so rife in those days, even if there were quite a lot of accidents, people would be more worried about things like disease than the accidental deaths?
0: I think people were probably worried about both. It's interesting if you look at uh, pre-Reformation religious practice that... Um, People are concerned with sudden death. They're concerned with sudden death partly because they didn't want to die without having made confession of their sins to a priest. And so uh, it was said, for example, that there were certain prayers that you could say or relics that you could carry uh, or or indeed that going to mass uh, on any particular day would stop you dying suddenly. Uh, on that day. So they were clearly worried about um, dying in an accident when they hadn't had time to, to compose themselves, um, particularly because uh, the classic deathbed people are meant not only to, to make their peace with God, but also to make their peace with their neighbours and call in people um, to whom they owed debts or, or against whom they had grudges or whatever in, in an ideal world and put things straight with them. So just being run over by a cart or kicked by a horse or falling into a river and drowning uh, was something that worried people uh, in in a broader sense, not just in the sense that um, that they would die doing that rather than dying doing something else. On the other hand, clearly people were very worried about diseases of all sorts uh, and and sought all sorts of remedies uh, to deal with them. And indeed, the government started to uh, try to, for example, introduce quarantine to deal with plague outbreaks in the 16th century in a way that they hadn't done before. So I think people are worried about both the the background uh, disease uh, kind of deaths uh, and, of course, background uh, starvation kind of deaths at at times when uh, harvests were bad. Again, uh, 16th century governments were the first to uh, start to intervene systematically in the grain market to try to uh, bring grain onto the market at affordable prices in years of bad harvest so that people wouldn't uh, starve. And it looks as though the, uh, the Lake District, which is an area with very poor communications to the rest of the country uh, in this period, the Lake District in the late 16th, early 17th century was more or less the last place in England where people died in large numbers in famines. Uh, people would be weakened or, or become ill or so, and so on in famines, but it looks as though there wasn't that much death from starvation in 16th century England. But even so, it's something people would have worried about. Um, it's interesting, of course, that accidents um, are something that uh, again, people could take measures against. And there are some forms of health and safety advice in, in 16th century uh, England. Um, we've been using a book by uh, Thomas Tusser, who's an agricultural author, wrote a book called 500 Points of Good Husbandry, which is advice for farmers. Uh, and some of that has advice about, uh, for example, um, keeping your rat poison in a very safe place because otherwise there's a danger that it will poison your your family members Uh, and we have got people who accidentally eat rat poison and and, and die from that Uh, or he also gives people advice that if they're trying to control birds that are uh, attacking their crops or their livestock by going up in a tree to destroy a bird's nest then they should climb very carefully and we've got numbers of people who fall out of trees after climbing up them in the attempt to uh, destroy bird's nests so there clearly was uh, Discussion in the 16th century about how you avoided accidents, um, but equally uh, th- th- things always go wrong sooner or later. Um, the other thing, of course, is that although it's hard to say absolutely whether people are more or less likely to die in accidents then than they are now, uh, it's very interesting to see what the proportions of accidents are that are different. So, drowning, uh, in 2010, drowning accounted for uh, maybe 2% of accidental deaths in Britain. Uh, In the 16th century, it's somewhere between 40 and 50%. So, uh, the sorts of hazards that people are exposed to are are very different. Similarly, horses uh, are are a much bigger threat uh, in the 16th century. and other things are much less of a threat we have a few people but not very many people who die falling downstairs whereas now that's quite a common injury uh, because in the 16th century uh, most houses are only one or at most two stories uh, and most of the population is rather younger Uh, so so the classic accidents now of older people tripping and falling downstairs are are just not so likely to happen in the 16th century
3: what's the next stage of your research project now so, the next stage is that we're moving
0: on to the 1590s, um, and, uh, the idea being that having looked at the 1550s in detail, we can then look at the 1590s and see what sorts of comparisons we can make about change over time. Uh, in the end, we're aiming to work right through all the 16th century, uh, accidental death material. Uh, it's thinner at the start of the century, so we won't have, uh, quite so many records from the first two or three decades of the century. Then, uh, the numbers are pretty constant from the 1540s 1550s onwards um and as we go along the aim is to look at different aspects of uh, life so we've been looking recently at uh, uh Um, work, uh, agricultural work and also industrial work uh, and how it's different in different parts of the country, different at different times of year. Um, October, for example, was the classic time for falling out of trees, trying to knock acorns down to fatten pigs uh, because that was the season for fattening up pigs on ripe acorns before you slaughtered them because there wasn't enough food to keep them going over the winter. Um, So, uh, that's an area we'll look at. What we're aiming to do is to over the four years, to look at as many different areas of 16th century life as we can through these accidents, and then pull it all together at the end into a book that uh, works out what we can and can't find out about 16th century life from looking at all these accidental death reports.
3: Well, it sounds like really fascinating research, but do you ever find it a bit too bleak? Well, it's true that because
0: uh, every document that we're looking at is about somebody uh, getting killed in an unexpected way, uh, you do have to stop and remind yourself that these are tragic events. Uh, Some of them, uh, partly because they're very common accidents at the time, people walking along next to water and falling in, uh, start to become rather predictable and ordinary, others of them, when you read about them for the first time, are, are really upsetting uh, that, that we 've got several with uh, groups of young people washing sheep together in fast flowing rivers before the sheep are sheared, uh, and one person gets knocked over and gets into trouble in the water, and then one after another, all the others go in to try and help them uh, and that 's one of those situations that 's quite painful to, to think your way into. so they are distressing, and obviously the ones with small children in are particularly distressing. Uh, On the other hand, we do find ourselves, particularly when we put them all together or when we come across particularly unusual or interesting ones, uh, saying, well, uh, uh, in the end, Uh, it's a tragedy these people died after all they might well have died of the plague the next year Uh, and what we find out about their lives from uh, the things that happened to them uh, do give us the chance in some ways to to put them back into history and to take people who were very ordinary people even in the 16th century uh, and learn very interesting things about their lives and the lives of other people in the 16th century from the necessarily tragic events that happened to them.
3: That was Stephen Gunn of Merton College, Oxford. His research has been undertaken together with colleague Thomas Gromelski of Walson College, Oxford. You can read their article in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, which is still available as a back issue, as well as on the iPad. Before our next interview, I'd like to briefly mention an exciting new app that we've launched for the iPad. The Second World War Story is an interactive guide to the greatest conflict in human history. It's packed with expert analysis, stunning images and video footage. You can find the Second World War story at the App Store now. Anglo-Saxon England is often thought of as an idyllic land of rural peace and harmony. Yet, as Ryan Lavell of the University of Winchester tells section editor Matt Elton, the truth was often far less
1: bucolic there's often quite a nostalgic view of the anglo saxon period. is this view fairly far wider the mark
2: it, there is uh, a nostalgic view of the anglo saxon period yes, and uh, it's it's rather uh, Misjudging the, the period to to think of it in this this kind of rosy glow of uh, sweet meadows and, uh, and, and and babbling brooks and, and and people sort of leading this this sort of idyllic pastoral life uh, it's 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 quite a long way far of the mark to uh, to assume that life is like that I'm sure there were you know quite quite pleasant summers in Anglo-Saxon England just as occasionally we, we get them today but uh, the notion of of a kind of rural idyll I think uh, has its roots in um really in a in a sort of post post in, well not not just a post industrial but a kind of industrial as, as, as part of the re, the results of uh, the the process of industrialization and the the sort of victorian responses to uh, industrialization looking back to ideas of a of a lost seed and i i, I think i get the sense that 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 uh, starts to uh, become really predominant in uh, in popular culture in the 19th uh, century. And, and so, you know, when we romanticize the Anglo-Saxon period, as, as often happens, we're, we're, in fact, sort of, romantic, we're, we're picking up a Victorian idea in, in many ways and uh, an early modern idea of, of a kind of romanticized uh, Anglo-Saxon past. So, yes, it is pretty wide of the mark.
1: Okay, fantastic. So, I mean, talking about what life was actually like in the period, um, was there much of a class system?
2: Uh, So... Well, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a it's not a society of equals. It's uh, and and I think that's that's one of the the historiographical uh, myths of the Anglo-Saxon period. So that's one of the the sort of myths that comes about through the the writing of history about the period is that uh, we've got this 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 kind of sense of the uh, the Anglo-Saxons uh, waddling about as, as as Thomas Carlyle put it, waddling about in in pot-bellied equanimity. So there's those sort of uh groups wandering around in in, in quite uh an egalitarian equal society uh, and that's that's one of the myths and and that myth is can really be dispelled by by looking at say an anglo saxon charter where the uh, a, a document which would record the, uh, the the granting of land for example were they um were the people in the society, the people at the top of society are quite rigidly uh, defined according to their offices. They're, they're ranked uh, in order of, of seniority. So even at the top, there's a kind of class uh, system. And then, uh, and then there is a there is a very large, evidently a very large uh, peasant class. Some free and some uh, some of those the members of that class uh, unfree as well. And uh, the, there is a kind of sense of uh, a rigid delineation between the the rulers and the rules in in what what could be called class
1: terms certainly. So how were these classes split up?
2: Uh, so within within social classes, of course, to to say classes is is a bit of a, a modern. Misnomer in some ways, classes is uh, that to say a class, uh, a, a social class exists in the in the Anglo-Saxon period is is perhaps to put modern a sort of modern focus on it. But we can we can say uh, classes maybe maybe in the in the medieval period the word order might be used for a, a group of people. But uh, yeah, I mean in in, in terms of class. Divisions within within a sort of social class. Uh, there uh, there are people of um, different social distinctions who who do particular uh, tasks, who do particular uh, jobs on the land. There are particular peasants, in fact, uh, the Yabur uh, class, who um, seem to have been increasingly predominant uh, in in estates in um, um in rural estates who who are linked to um particular pieces of land particular areas of land where they uh, they they wouldn't in fact be able to uh, to move from those estates in fact uh, or they may have the, the rights to move from those um areas of land but uh, in effect, if if they did move away, they'd, they'd lose everything they've put into that land in in working on it. Uh, so there are particular uh, gradations of, um, of 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 social position within the uh, within the rural um, uh, peasants uh, peasant classes. Uh, so. So yes, I mean there there are evidently um, groups of people within the classes. Uh, there are uh, there there were um, unfree peasants, entirely unfree peasants as well, who, who who could be equated with with slaves. In fact, I mean there does seem to be a, a distinctly large uh, a distinct slave class as well, who may well have been uh, well who who were in many ways distinguished legally from the uh, the free peasantry. Um, uh, and 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 whether there's a, a sort of middle class or not, I think is is, is sort of open to debate. But uh, there were um, certainly traders in uh, Anglo-Saxon England too, and there's evidence that that people tried to uh, move between classes uh, according to to whether or not they they um, gained gained wealth and that there are particular sort of ceilings to social mobility in at, at, at points as well.
1: okay I mean talking about the very highest orders I suppose, were there certain things that enabled you to become a member of those those top orders?
2: Uh, yes yeah uh, the ownership of land is is the main thing so to own five hides of land is is seen as the the qualifying uh the qualifying um ownership the the, the qualifying um issue for people to be a member of the thinely Class uh, in the 11th century, and um, in fact, Wolfston, the Archbishop of York, uh, complained that uh, that people were attempting to to gain this this dainly position without having the the necessary necessary land. So, evidently, you know, maybe some there were some people who were uh, getting getting through this uh, qualifying position without uh, what was required, but basically there, there do seem to have been particular uh, material expectations uh, for for these um, people so so you 've got that and then there are also other things that they might be required to have uh, uh, their own residence with their own uh, tower and their own bell tower on it and their own hall within that residence so these are you know these are these are quite major qualifying attributes these are the sorts of things that you you would associate with a with a knightly class in uh, later centuries in fact. Is is very similar to the uh, the continental knightly class, uh, and 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 so that's that's the sort of thing that defines you of, as, as being of aristocratic status in in the Anglo-Saxon period, and as as you, you move. As you move higher into the, the nobility uh, as you start to see the, the sort of super magnates uh, one defining feature seems to be being linked to the royal family uh, so through marriage or through blood or, or perhaps by both in fact you know being related to the royal family was an important thing so so in fact this, this sort of super kin group uh, this, this sort of class of, of super magnates of, of late anglo saxon England the, the, the very wealthy uh, aldermen and, and Later earls uh, were related to the, the royal family uh, by by some very close uh, networks. So these these are things that are, are perhaps less legally defining features than things which sort of come out of of belonging to a, a, a powerful um, uh, controlling ruling uh, class in the in the period.
1: Sure, so i mean it sounds quite difficult to become a high ranked kind of social member i mean how much sociability was there in the period?
2: I think social mobility is limited. there are debates as to to how how easy it was to um to move up through your uh through the well they they were uh far uh, far more Opaque than glass ceilings in the period, you know, they were very very defined glass ceilings between these uh, these different areas of, of, of status, and um, th- so there are these these kind of debates relating to these legal texts uh, from largely from the 11th century about where where people might belong, and and and, and there have been arguments that people could move up between those, those classes. But I think you would have to do particularly well in order to, um, in order to, to become, to move from being say, a, a, a free peasant who had acquired a certain amount of land, uh, and acquired more land and acquired more wealth as a result of this and, 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 and been a successful, um, well, been a, a successful farmer in effect. Um, there were still limits as to to how far they could move up uh, to the Thainley class. I think the the requirements is is quite a a socially exclusive requirement. This is an exclusive club, the the Thainley class in in late Anglo-Saxon England, and um, so social mobility, I, I think, in that respect, is limited. Um, but evidently, people were able to um, to prosper, you know. So it 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 was possible to um, to do well. It was evidently possible to uh, uh, to flourish for for one estates so to to flourish, and and so even for a, a free peasant to to acquire more land and the means of of uh, greater uh, production. I mean, this is a period the 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 uh, period the eighth ninth 10th centuries are, are periods of of land clearance where, where more land is coming under production and uh, it's possible to uh, to flourish in that way it's possible because of the the opening of new markets as well uh, in in lots of in, in the many towns that are founded in england in the, uh, the ninth and 10th Centuries and and indeed the 11th centuries, so that it, it was possible to um, to gain wealth, to perhaps even uh, gain coins as well as a as a result of uh, trading in in markets uh, in in the period too. So so the possibilities of um, of social mobility in in terms of material wealth uh, were evidently. Presence, uh, so I don't think we should really assume that everybody is absolutely bolted down to their uh, to, to states of, of penury and, uh, and and poverty. But nonetheless, there there are evident you know there are evident aims of, of of stopping people who who do particularly well to uh, to climb the social ladder too quickly
1: okay so turning um to the other end of the spectrum i suppose um what would day-to-day life have been like for the poorest members of society
2: it it's difficult to know but uh it's for the poorest members of society who do the most difficult jobs i mean it's it's uh it's a hard life. I think it's a difficult life. It's uh, it's a, a situation where there's um, where where agricultural work has to be done in the the daylight hours that are available uh, in in winter time. Of course, there's less work to be done because there's less daylight in which to to do it. And and uh, evidently, well, uh, gosh, what would we say? fewer tasks are, are to be done in winter, but there are still tasks to be done such as mending fences and uh, and, and, and still ensuring that uh, uh, that they, that land is uh, properly properly maintained um, there's there's a lot of agricultural tasks that are are necessary in uh, in anglo saxon england just as in any uh, pre industrial society where where people live on the land and, uh, and, and for the poorest members of society uh, people were people live in a in a state where the possibility of of gaining a a sort of greater surplus of food, of of of, of things to eat, of, of ways to, to sustain your family are, are limited, and um, effectively it's a subsistence economy where, um, where 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 people are are living in, in that manner. Um, so, in terms of the the, the poorest in society, uh, they. The poorest tend to be the the people who are socially unfree, are, are quite possibly slaves, and have to do the dirtier jobs uh, around the uh, around the Anglo-Saxon farm. Uh, they they have to do the ploughing, the hard work. There is a there is a tenth century. Uh, text which records the, the words of a ploughman, the, the sort of imagined words of a ploughman, who says, uh, he is asked, is it hard work? And he says, it is hard work because I am not free. I have to rise early in the morning to to do this work. And uh, you get the, the sense of the toil, boring, the, the endless toil, I think, is, is the other part of it. I mean, to, to keep Ploughing fields is is a tremendous, you know, using oxen, using uh, wooden ploughs and and the wooden ploughshares is, is tremendously uh, difficult work. It's it's hard work and it's also um, tiring work as well. Uh, so when you've got those those tasks uh, necessary, you've got the tasks of of looking after uh, animals as well and. Uh, and ensuring that the, um, the the property is is maintained usually not your own property as well, uh, the poorest members of society might have land that they 're cultivating for themselves, but they 're also cultivating land uh, for landlords manorial landlords as well so they 're also doing the work for for those landlords so it doesn 't mean to say that there's no no possibility for you know for, for thinking beyond the the sort of manual tasks but uh, as as the um the literature of of the anglo saxons has has riddles for example which are uh, the 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 kind of literary entertainment evidently the literary entertainment of of the uh, the working man and woman um but the the idea that you would have tremendous amounts of free time in which to enjoy it i I'm I'm not convinced that there will be huge amounts of free time in uh, in, in later certainly not in later Anglo-Saxon society uh, for the um, uh, for the, for the poorest members of society at, at least for uh, for those who are uh, for those who are working on other people's land or uh, uh, or are socially unfree.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, and moving on to another fairly major social group, um, how do you think women would have fared during the period?
2: Well, I the think the, the thing is I've been talking about people of, of these different classes and women belong to these, these different social classes as well. I, and um, so there were female slaves, there were uh, female members of the churlish Class. Uh, there were female yobours, uh, so the, the, the kind of free peasantry, and uh, there were uh, uh, women nobles, uh, so, so women could be members of the, the nobility, uh, to the extent, actually, that there are um, Anglo-Saxon wills uh, of women who record the, the render of, of what's known as a heriot, A a rendering of weapons is is legally what's meant by a harriet. So you render weapons to your lord so that you might have the right to make a will. And um, it's interesting that, well, there are a number of of wills of of Anglo-Saxon women. Uh, but it's interesting that there are some which refer to the the, the rendering of weapons to a lord uh, in order that they might be able to make their will, just as a, a an Anglo-Saxon uh, male fame would do. Uh, so there is there is a kind of um, there is a kind of equality of status in terms of legal terms of status in some ways uh, for for women, but uh, on the other hand women's position depended upon their father, it depended on their husband, or depended on their brother. Uh, And uh, there's there's a number of uh, mentioning the wills of uh, Anglo-Saxon noble women. It's very interesting how many of the wills uh, indicate the interest of the male members of the families in those wills. So, uh, whereas... uh, these women may not have, have felt like they were being uh, oppressed by the members of their families when they were uh, granting lands to uh, to sons and brothers and whatever, um, there's a kind of expectation, I think there's a very strong social expectation that they do the right thing for their family, a kind of uh, social, a uh, family corporate identity, if you like, a kind of family identity that, uh, that that women have to abide by.
3: That was Ryan Lavelle of the University of Winchester. He wrote a piece for our Christmas issue, which, as I mentioned earlier, can still be ordered as a back issue and purchased for the iPad. And that is about all for this episode. Why not tell us what you thought of it by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at historyextra, or on Facebook, forward slash History Extra. Do join us next week when we'll be talking about the Knights Templar, among other things. And in the meantime, you can keep an eye on what we're up to via our website, historyextra.com. There you'll find quizzes, blogs, book reviews, TV previews, and much, much more. Thanks a lot for listening. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.